Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group. Recognize market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. I am here with Rod Martin, Senior Vice President and Director of Development with Majestic Realty Company. Rod, you joined Majestic in 1992. You are, um, these are my words, so you can't correct me. You're responsible for building, leasing, and managing some of the best located and highest quality industrial buildings in the Las Vegas market. How many square feet do you guys have now of industrial? About 6 million square feet. 6 million. Nothing to sneeze at. You are a graduate of Arizona State University where you got a degree in management. You're a cherished board member for NAOP Southern Nevada. I could say that as a fellow board member. Uh, you're also on the board for YMCA. You're a proud father, a happy husband, and one of the nicest gentlemen in our industry that I've ever had the privilege to meet. Thank you very much, I am. I appreciate those comments. Absolutely. Maybe I, I might take exception with the last one, but everything else was right on. One of the nicest. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You are the nicest, not one of the nicest. Uh, so those are my words. Tell us in your words, who are you and what do you do? Well, I guess to say, who am I? First answer is always going to be, I am a husband of my wonderful wife, Anne-Marie, and the father of two wonderful children. And at least they're wonderful in my eyes. I hope that they're eventually going to be wonderful in the eyes of all society. But that's who I am first and foremost. Beyond that, I am a uh, dedicated employee of Majestic Realty. I'm a development partner in all that we've done out here in Las Vegas. Um, hardworking is what I would describe myself as, uh, loyal, and again, dedicated. So it's a, an industrial development capacity that I'm in. We've selected to really focus on the uh, a very small corner of the market, being the Southwest submarket and try to promote the, uh, the development of kind of top-of-the-class, state-of-the-art industrial buildings servicing the resort corridor of Las Vegas. So let's stick with Majestic for a bit because I think it's a unique company doing unique things. First and foremost, though, you, the, the company doesn't just own industrial properties. Is that right? So the company backing up is now about 70 years old. Whoa. It is uh, being... It was founded by a gentleman by the name of Ed Roski. We referred to him as Ed Roski Sr. because his son, Ed Roski Jr., has been at the helm for coming up now probably on near 50 years. Uh, there was probably a 10 to 15-year transitional period there where both Jr. and Sr. were making decisions, but Ed Jr. has been really at the helm probably about the last 30 years now. Wow. Um, industrial developer by nature over the course of time in 70 years obviously a lot of things change and we've expanded into different segments of commercial real estate uh, office retail and hospitality uh, ed has also ventured into the sports business uh, as i think you're you're aware mm -hmm. of he's part owner of the the lakers and the kings in los angeles as well as being one of the instrumental forces in developing the staples center in mm -hmm. southern california and we're, I think the longer that, you know, we exist as a company, the more things we're at least open to entertaining 
as potential areas of development. But I would say when you go back to the overall portfolio base of some 85, 90 million square feet, the vast majority, 95 plus percent is industrial. And that will always remain our bread and butter. So what cities are you guys in? So we're headquartered in Southern California in City of Industry, aptly named. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say within the, the Southern California market, we're probably about 50, 55 million square feet. Next largest market for us would be Atlanta, where we're about 11 to 12 million square feet. Uh, throughout Texas, uh, we've probably got about 8 million square feet there spread throughout some of the, the various metropolitan areas in Texas here in Las Vegas. Uh, again, we've got about the 6 million square feet. From here, we drop down to uh, Denver, Portland, um, Phoenix now, kind of central Pennsylvania. So and, and your portion of it is just Southern Nevada? That's my area of concentration, yes. Your area of concentration. How did you come to work for Majestic? So it's interesting. The, the prior employer was another privately held developer. Uh, for some people as old as I am might remember the name Bircher because they were actually active here in Las Vegas back in the, the 80s. And the gentleman who I worked for at Majestic was actually Ed Roski's roommate and fraternity brother at USC. And when... Wait, the roommate was with Bircher or with... Was Mc with Bircher. Okay, got it. So he was Ed's roommate. Okay. And still remained good friends with Ed. He worked for Majestic for a number of years. And when things slowed down in Southern California, which I don't know whether you're aware of this or even remember, there was a, really a, a, recess, a recession in Southern California that in many ways rivaled what we experienced here in Las Vegas in the early 90s. And there, you know, it was prompted by a lot of different variables. But mm -hmm. in any event, very few developers were still developing. And John was, you know, helpful to me in putting me over to Majestic and was certainly instrumental as well as some others who put in good words for me to go to work at Majestic. And I went to the home office there in 92 for about two years, worked on the existing portfolio and then the opportunity was presented to me to come up to Las Vegas and open the first satellite office for Majestic outside of Southern California. So it seems, it occurs to me that, I mean, it's a pretty special company, and it's a pretty special position that you have and have maintained for all of these years. So that's cool in and of itself. Not, you know, there's not dozens of Rod Martins out there in Las Vegas running around trying to build buildings for Majestic. That's correct. Um, and I would say it is a special company because it's, owned and operated by a special guy uh, and I'm sure we'll get into this more later but uh, it's he's a unique individual that really demands a lot from his people but I can tell you as one of his people uh, it's something that you want to give him he's deserving of the respect and the work ethic that that we put in and again he I will say he's demanding but it's one of those things that he's deserving too. So you've been here since the early 90s. Mm -hmm. That was one recession that, that brought you here in a way. We'll talk maybe a little later about the recession that you referenced that, was, that hit Vegas very hard. But um, before we, we go any further on there, you know, this show is called Takeaways. It's about my takeaways from people who have influenced me. And over the years, you've certainly been one of those people. So I'd like to ask you, like I ask everyone, what is the single most influential thing or event in your life that shaped you the most? So it's going to be hard to, to isolate a single 
event, and I, if I had to, I think in honesty, I, I would say that it was probably my upbringing. I think that's really what provided the foundation for who I am. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have a very stable upbringing. I had an extremely hardworking father who probably spent more time at work than maybe in my mind an ideal father would, but he came from the mindset that he needed to provide for his family. He always stressed in me um, honesty as well as uh, integrity and provided me a role model for that. And my mother fortunately provided me kind of the soft side and you know expressed that warmth, kindness, and love. And I would say between the two of those, that would be the, you know, the primary example that uh, was provided to me to really create who I am as a person. Can I ask, I'm a father, as you know, how do you instill honesty and integrity? I guess you demonstrate it and exhibit to them, and you ensure that they understand the importance of that and what that does to their character and the reputation they're trying to build for themselves. So demonstrate and emphasize the, the importance of it. Consistent, so so hard to do, isn't it? Yeah, the consistently part is super hard, for me anyway. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's being able to be honest with them when, when you make a mistake. And, you know, sometimes it's hard for, for par- parents or some people to do it. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it should be hard. And I think that that's something that all parents need to do and recognize that we all make mistakes. Yeah. And it's okay to let your, your children know. At least it's worked in, in my household as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure it has. Well, thank you for that. Uh, you mentioned Roski and you mentioned he's, he's demanding. Um, every time I've ever seen you over the last probably 10 years since I've, I've known you, maybe a bit longer, you're in a shirt and tie or a suit and tie. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? This is the, uh, the maj- majestic dress code, which comes from Ed. And it gets to a point, quite frankly, where it's just as easy for me. It's, it's, I'm sure as it is for you, you have your go-to clothing in your closet. Mm-hmm. And it's the like same. a uniform. Yeah. yeah. And that's all that it is for me. Um, I probably have a larger selection of work clothes than I do casual clothes. But at the same time, it just becomes a routine. And as you say, it is a uniform. You wake up in the morning, you put your uniform on, you go into work or wherever it is that you're going to go. Is that something that's mandated in the company handbook or is it more of an influence kind of a thing? I don't know that we have a company handbook. (laughs) 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 Again, so much of it, I think, is lead by example. Mm -hmm. And that's the way Ed has always been. That's the way that he expects all of us to be in promoting the, the image of what Majestic is and should be. Now, what's his background? Isn't there a military? Yes, yeah, so he served in, in Vietnam, um, decorated uh, war veteran, and he is a graduate of, of USC, and then he went to work as, at his father's company when he came back from Vietnam. Did you work with Senior? Oh, yeah. How are they different, if at all? So to me, they're different, and the differences may just be the result of the stages of the company. Uh, Ed Sr., one of the stories I I loved about Ed Sr. was very early on in in my career at Majestic, uh, there was an event where we were looking to go out for a celebratory dinner on a deal. 
and you know, I remember inviting Ed Sr., and he says, my boy, there's, there's only one time that you celebrate a deal in, in commercial real estate. It's not when you close on the land. It's not when you get your loan. It's not when you build. It's not when you lease it. He says, you celebrate a deal when you pay off the loan. When there's no debt on the property, he says, then I'll go have a celebratory dinner with you. And that's just something that's always stuck in my mind since that that is. And he's absolutely right, because mm -hmm. prior to that, there's just, you know, another hurdle in front of you. So that was Ed Sr.'s mindset. He also was of the mindset that don't overextend yourself. Make sure you can control what it is that you're creating. And in the context of Southern California, so much of the development and the expansion of the, the population base is based upon freeways. You go out one more freeway, one more freeway, and that was really the way that he operated. And it was because he didn't want to lose that control and didn't want to lose that touch that he had with his projects and his tenants and so forth. Ed Sr., I think, has used that as a springboard to expand out beyond that Southern California marketplace. I think Ed, Sen Ed Jr. rather has a higher a higher tolerance for risk but that's higher than a zero tolerance for near zero tolerance for risk uh, you know ed still is a junior is very disciplined when it comes to, to underwriting projects and or any particular deal that it may be and he recognizes that missing out on a deal isn't going to to devastate him nearly to the extent that doing the wrong deal would and i think that's something else that permeates uh, you know throughout the company and certainly another um, another guiding principle that that I really follow so you and I met um, through NAOP I was in the developing leaders Institute mm -hmm. this was about was 2009 so we were in the throes of the recession and one of the things that I wrote down in, in preparing for this is that there's a discipline I want to talk about discipline it's clear that it's always been clear to me that you approach things with discipline, that Majestic is very disciplined. We talked about you're not an industrial developer all over the Las Vegas Valley even. You know, you're very disciplined about the product, but you're also disciplined about the product in the area, in the submarket. You talked about the southwest part of the valley, which is where you guys have your, your properties. Mm -hmm. um, is all of that, does all that come down from Roski Sr., Roski Jr., just permeate throughout the entire company? To a degree, yes. I can tell you that probably what I hear from Roski Jr., and again, with Sr. having passed, he's you know, simply Ed, and he would you know, correct anybody who tries to refer to him as anything other than Ed. But I probably uh, you know, hear more from him, why aren't you doing more up there? Mm -hmm. Why aren't you going up into North Las Vegas? Why aren't you going down to, to West Henderson? And, you know, by all means, it's something that I'm looking at, at the opportunities that are available to us. Mm -hmm. and, but ultimately, it does come back to that discipline. And I guess one thing that should be noted with respect to our, our company is what our business model is. And that is as a portfolio developer to build and hold. And we don't have you know, the, the same dynamics that we might if we were looking to to sell product which obviously it's been a tremendous market here recently as it was some 12 years ago but we're still underwriting projects based upon what the uh, the returns are what the the equity requirements are um, and recognizing where the best opportunities are for for edge dollars and for all of his development partners dollars and so the the difference in what you do as opposed to maybe another developer, is you build it to hold it, not build it to sell it. That's correct. And that really governs how you approach getting into a deal. 
because it all of this stuff has to make sense. It governs everything. It, you know, it's so much beyond just getting into the deal. Um, it's we spend probably as much, if not more, time than most developers in analyzing the the site plans, and re recognizing that we're going to own this project in five years, ten years, twenty years, you know, fifty years. Mm -hmm. And if there's design flaws that you know are exist today, obviously they're going to become bigger flaws in the future. And you're trying to also anticipate the uh, the life of a project wherein it may be a single tenant day one and might be multi-tenant in, in year 10. And you do as much as you can to avoid those additional expenses of you know, having to make modifications to the project after the fact. So we spend an awful lot of time in the front end on all aspects, including the, the quality of construction. Uh, we'll spend a little bit more on, on certain things because, once again, problems that are created will come back to bite us in the future. It's such a contradiction hearing you talk about this industry and this profession called development. On the one hand, you get this image of, you know, it's awesome, it's glorious, there's, there's jets everywhere, it's, it's a cowboy kind of a thing, you got to make the deal, you got to get the deal. On the other hand, you're talking about discipline and underwriting and all this seemingly boring stuff. And I think it's both. And I, I think it's both even within the same company and different individuals. I happen to be a you know, very traditional kind of block and tackling guy. There's others at Majestic that are more of those risk takers and are out there looking for you know, where the next rainmaker is going to be. And I think that that's one of the things that is it's an attribute of our company and I think of any company just having those different mindsets from, you know, the parties that, you know, potentially can be inf influential in the future of a company. What do you mean by block and tackle? Um, How does that like show up in your day to day? So, I mean, it, it shows up again from, from start to finish. It, it starts on the design side and it, it's really understanding what the market is, what your sub market is and what the particular location is and what needs to be built or you believe needs to be built in that location. And you're trying to you know, look into a crystal ball as to what that location is going to be, you know, again, decades down the road. So it starts there. It really gets then into the, uh, the coordination with the, the general contractor, with the civil engineer. You spend an awful lot of time understanding what the, the drainage is. And how many different ways can you do this? I, I can't tell you every site plan that we've done I'll probably look at single building, multiple buildings, orient them this way, orient them that, that way, and just know that you've exhaustively looked at, at every potential possibility before you arrive at what you think is the, you know, the correct direction to go. Mm -hmm. And you, you utilize the resources around you. Um, once again, Ed is invaluable in that regard. He's got more, far more years than I do in the industry. And it's a very collaborative process that I'll do all the work that I can in on the design side and put it in front of him and know that he's just going to fire away questions. Why did you do this? Why didn't you do that? So it starts from there. And then I think the other thing, once the, the project is built and there's you know a big you know jump from that design to having it built, and that's fraught with problems and challenges along the way that you're going to need to overcome. But it's also, I, I think, something trying to, you have foresight in what to anticipate could go wrong. And it's one of those things that you're thinking about daily. And you know that every development deal is going to be, you know, mm -hmm. it, you'll encounter it's different problems. It's not if, it's what. Yeah. It's not if there are going to be problems. It's what problems are, go are going to and happen. And how many problems. And how many. 
And so there's that process to until completion. And then the, the blocking and tackling, once the project is built, is ensuring that you've got the right tenants in the building. For us, it's ensuring mm-hmm. we've got the right tenants in the building. And that means you do an awful lot of underwriting in the front end, not only their fin- financial wherewithal, but uh, we'll go out and look at the existing location of virtually every tenant that we have and do the best that we can to understand how is this going to work within the, the framework of the other tenants that may be in the building. How's their housekeeping? Once again, because we don't want to create problems for mm-hmm. ourselves or for our management team later on down the road. And a lot of it is just a gut feel. If you don't have a good gut feel about a person or just something just doesn't ring true, there again, it's better to walk from that deal rather than you know, accepting a, a deal that you kind of knew was nagging at you. Is there one that you can remember where your gut was saying walk away and maybe you didn't and what happened? Boy, it's funny you mention that, Haim, because right now we've got a situation where literally we just got the eviction order signed uh, last week, and we're going to get the space back. And it's one that, yeah, my gut told me probably in the front end we probably at least should question whether we want to do business with this group or not. And that was more of a gut feel based on the personalities involved than it was anything else about their business. Again, so contrary to what I would think, you know, you build a building, you want to fill it up as quickly as possible with whoever comes to you. And you guys don't even look at it like that. No. No. Uh, You want to fill it up with the right tenant because you fill it up with the wrong tenant, you're going to get it back. You're probably going to have to put more money into it because you put certain amount of improvements in for the specific tenant. And over the long haul, you, you learn not to do that. You want to make sure that you do the very best you can to get the right tenants in the building. And Again, di- different for you because you plan to hold it for yeah. forever. Yeah, and there's you know the other aspect to it. Obviously, if you're going to hold it forever, then it comes. you pay a lot of attention to what type of loan you're going to be able to get. Um, because we're a private developer and we put our own money into it, we want to minimize what we need to put into it, which means you maximize what the loan proceeds are, which, again, is going to be a function of what the credit quality is of your tenant. So design, construction, the market, supply and demand, finance. What else do I have to study in school to be a developer? <laughs> you know, it's funny. So you mentioned school and uh, you mentioned my, my degree. And I'll tell you what I really stumbled into, because it certainly isn't what I intended to do. Um, the short answer to, of your question is negotiations. And although it's a business management degree, it was an emphasis in labor relations. And so there, which is all about negotiating and trying to find that common ground where all parties reach an acceptable solution. And I I think that there's an awful lot of negotiation, obviously, in everything that everybody does and whatever their walk of life is. But it really is being sensitive to what the other person or party is saying or what you believe they need. You do as much research as you you can to determine what it is they do need. So I, I think that you know, that is something that is probably a, a learned trait that people need to understand that you're well advised to listen to the other party and you're trying to gauge what it is that is going to get them to where you're hoping to get them to. Another thing that's contrary, I mean, you've got the best product, the best location. Can't you just tell them what you want and they either take it or leave it? I don't think you can. I don't think that's the attitude that you should have in any business. You know, I don't think that any party wants to feel as though the other party has the upper hand. And I don't think that's the way that you're really going to generate loyalty. 
uh, one of the experiences that we had that was probably more prolonged than, than we would like is going back to the uh, the recession that we experienced here in Las Vegas, which lasted obviously a, a heck of a long time. But one of the biggest challenges for me, quite frankly, was, and this goes back to you know who has the upper hand, if you, you'll remember during that period of time, mm-hmm. tenants and tenant brokers would be calling all their landlords and saying, you know, blend and extend oh, yeah. or you know, whatever it may be. And as a landlord entity, we, we finally dug our heels in. And we said, you know, if we've got a, a signed contract with tenants and we are going to obviously fulfill our obligations under that contract and expect tenants will as well. And at such time, that the, uh, the, the term expires by all means, then it could be renegotiated, but we're not going to renegotiate until that point in time. And the challenge was that you take that position with tenants and even those that you're going to negotiate with upon lease, exp- lease term expiration, and you're going you're gonna to drop their rate, but probably not as low as it might go elsewhere in the market. And there were other buildings that may have gone back to the banks or maybe you know, the, uh, the financial condition of, of the ownership wasn't quite the same, and they were more desperate, just get bodies in mm-hmm. here. Let's get something is better than nothing. And the challenge then becomes, are you going to take a new tenant in your vacant space and say, yeah, the building over there, they can get for 20% less than what I'm going to ask for this building, but there again, something is better than nothing, knowing you've just negotiated with their next-door neighbor who's been a tenant of yours for 10 years, and you wound up dropping their rate maybe 10%, but not the 25% that they were looking at. How do you look that tenant in the eye long-term and say, yeah, I hope you understand that, you know, I may have been this tough with you, but I took this guy over here that's a startup company I know nothing about, and they've got a rate 20% less than you. And that's one of those that, you know, to me demonstrates a lot to your tenants that it is a two-way street. And it really shouldn't be, when, in my opinion, anything but a two-way street between landlord and tenant because when tenant is successful, then landlord is successful. And so regardless of what the, the vacancy factor is, as you know here, the vacancy today is very low. But I will never look at a, a transaction saying that we have the upper hand and this is what the number is. If they're not going to take that, that's fine. We'll, we'll pass. I mean, it really needs to be something that both parties believe they're getting a fair deal on. You just proved why I said you're the nicest guy in the market. <laughs> um, this this reminds me of a story you told me a long time ago that's always stuck with me and served me very well in my career. And that was a st- <clears throat> excuse me, a story about a broker in the market that we all know very well named Dan Doherty mm-hmm. with Colliers. And I mean, you'll 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 share the story, but it was something that that I don't know if it surprised you, but it surprised me the way that you you talked about it. He brought a deal to you. And didn't negotiate a, 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 you know, try to exact a pound of flesh out of the landlord uh, representing his tenant. And there was a reason why. Can you share that story? Yeah, absolutely. That dates back about 15 years ago. And by no means is this a slight on Dan, because we both know that Dan is one of, if not the premier industrial broker here in Las Vegas. Nice plug for Dan. In any event, in this particular instance, the market conditions were such that there was not a lot of available property at the time, very similar to what we experience here today. And Dan had a very large tenant that had a requirement, needed to get into a building, and he recognized that the best service he could provide to his client is get them in a building and get a lease signed. 
It was not to say, how can we, you know, maybe get a little better deal here, negotiate a little bit more there. He recognized, and I, you know, complimented him, quite frankly, on one of the, the, the turns on the lease, you know, how pleased I was to see the, the few comments. And his statement to me was, in this instance, the service that he needs to best provide to his client is get them this building. And he worked with the client, he worked with the attorneys, and he said, get this lease signed. Uh, here, fast forward some 15 years, that tenant is still in the building. The building still works very well for him. And I think that that was something that not all brokers recognize. You know, sometimes brokers feel as though that they, they need to demonstrate their, their value to the transaction. And it's kind of interesting because I can tell you from secondhand information that that particular tenant wasn't real sure that, uh, you know, the commission should have been as large as it was for the amount of work that went into it. But I think that it's one of those things you just need to look at the, the big picture. That tenant got the building that they wanted that, as it turns out, they really needed to be in and are still in today. And for that, I, I give Dan a lot of credit for recognizing that. You know, there's a meme on the Internet that, you're, you know, you don't pay me for the 30 minutes I wor of work that I did for you. You pay me for the 30 years of experience I learned to do 30 minutes of work for you. That's good. That's what reminded me of, of that. What about another story? Maybe something to the contrary where there's an over-brokering and what, what that looks like. So nothing's immediately jumping to mind, nor would I attach a name to that. But, yeah, there's certainly no doubt that there's over-brokering that we see here on a local basis. So diplomatic. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's quite frankly, more so, I think, from out-of-the-area brokers. Mm -hmm. And I would say that I certainly saw that during the downturn here. And we would get the calls, obviously, from the tenant brokers on a national level. And they, they had a different style, still have a very different style. But I would say, by and large, our local brokerage community here really has a better understanding. And it's one of those things that I, I think that we sometimes don't realize how lucky we are. And this comes from my background in Southern California, where our brokerage community it is a small community. We all know one another. We hear the stories, good and bad. And because of that, I think it really holds everybody in check. And that's not to say that there's, you know, not struggles that are out there, but particularly with, you know, the larger brokerage houses, um, by and large, and not just the, the nationals, I mean, including, you know, yours, Haim, and, you know, other, what we, you know, term the boutique firms, really have very few problems with those brokers, because I think the the fortunate thing is that we are a small community, and those that don't demonstrate, uh, you know, a real value to their client, whichever side their client may be on, it's going to be tough for them to continue in business here in town. Talk, talk more about that. I, I always say about our community, specifically the commercial real estate industry, which includes developers, bankers, attorneys, engineers, architects, brokers. It's so small and tight-knit where if you're a jerk, people know you're a jerk very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. What's your observations of our, of our industry? Well, I would agree with that statement. Uh, by all means, your, your reputation, reputation does precede yourself. Um, I don't know that there's any brokers that immediately jump to mind that I say have a bad reputation. There's some that may have a questionable reputation. Um, but that's kind of inherent in the business. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a very close friend who is a broker in Southern California, and I'll never forget 
his comments to me on on a particular deal that, that we are working and he said, you know, you got to keep in mind who the three most important parties are in any transaction. And then he paused and he said, me, me, and me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's this is a, a friend of yours? That's a friend of mine. That's a friend of mine. And what that taught me, obviously, mm -hmm. was, you know, he's a very successful broker, but shame on me if I ever allow him to get into my pocket because I know exactly how he is. And in many ways, it kind of keeps you on your toes. He still is a good friend of mine. Huh. I would never go into business with him. But because you know the kind of person that he is, you're required to, to stay on your toes. And if he gets the better of me, credit to him. That's, re that's your outlook? Yeah. It's very practical of you. Um, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, Dan Doherty 15 years ago. And, and you started with one company and that relationship led to another company. Talk about relationships. What do they mean to you? How do you play the long game in, a, in an industry like this? So let me ask you to clarify when you say relationships, are you speaking landlord-tenant relationships? Are you, you know, referring more toward uh, developer-brokerage relationships, developer-contractor relationships? I see you nodding your head, so I guess you're <laughs> saying relationships in general. I think that kind of answers the question in that there's so many relationships to yep. manage and to, to govern. There's attorneys on the other end of the deal. There's title officers on the other end of the deal. There's lenders on, on the other end of the deal. And, and what you talked about earlier, um, you know, Jared and I, my partner Jared and I, I don't know where we learned it, but early in our career, we learned that our job as a broker is not to uh, negotiate a bad marriage. Mm -hmm. You know, we're putting together a marriage if it's a lease, it could be three to 15 to 20 years of a relationship. And our job is to make sure that that's set on the right foot. When I came here to MDL Group, my previous company didn't have property management. Note, I learned the other side of the, of the coin with property management. Brokers are notorious by property managers that, you know, they just drop the deal in their lap and they walk away. There are things in the lease that have to be administered that now it's the property manager's job to administer. So, you know, my little tangent, but... The answer is yes, I guess. Yeah. Relationships. Relationships are critical in any line of work. And I think that relationships oftentimes are based on the individual's involved character. And that's just something I, I do my very best to, uh, to put forth uh, an honest and candid account for myself and for my company. And... I hope that that's appreciated by those who I'm dealing with and they give me the same consideration. And there again, I find more often than not, it works out. And so something else just came to mind that I want to ask you about. You have a relationship, obviously, with your company. You represent the company every day when you put on your uniform um, at Roski. You also have a relationship that's well known in the marketplace with Thomas and Mac. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. So it's interesting if you go back to the history of that relationship, it predates my time at Majestic. It was actually Jerry Mack who met Ed Roski Sr. and Jr. back in 1980s. And it was in Southern California on some land that, as it's turned out, we are working jointly with them uh, today and wow. have been for about the last 10 years out in the, the Riverside County area. So that's what really was the first introduction between the two companies. It then further evolved up here late 90s, 
and around 2000, 2001, I'm sure you remember our good friend Tim Snow. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, I had actually known Tim for years predating uh, my time at Majestic as well, but we got together and tried to do a deal with uh, GES. And GES, as it turned out, wound up going to our project that we're doing jointly. But some of those, uh, I guess, your listeners will remember that GES was one, kind of that 600-pound gorilla here in Las Vegas for years and years and years, and many developers tried to get them to go into their facility. Both ourselves and Thomas and Mac tried to get them to go into one of our other facilities, and it turned out that we agreed to let each one stand on its own. However, we would join forces and jointly go after the, uh, the land that we've obviously uh, been very successful with out there by the Beltway and what we term our Beltway Business Park. So that's kind of the history to it. I, I guess, you know, you then point to relationships again. Mm -hmm. I was going to say that puts a real exclamation mark on that question about relationships. And, you know, I go back to character and, you know, Tom Thomas, you know, Peter Thomas, who are really the at the forefront of the, the Thomas and Mac families. You, you don't define any better character than what you have with those two gentlemen. And that really is the makings of, of any relationship, of any partnership. Um, you know, we kind of, of course, we have to provide legal documentation to everything, operating agreements and so forth. I don't mm -hmm. think we've ever looked at an operating agreement because you just sit around a table with your partner, you jump on the phone with your partner, and you know that both parties are going to do what's right. And quite frankly, sometimes what's in the agreement may not be what's right today. You're just going to have that level of trust in, in your partner that every, all sides are going to do what's right and there's never been a, a bump in the road and I don't think there ever will be a bump in the road in that partnership. Reminds me of something Jared said on this podcast. He said, friendship doesn't always have to be a two-way street. You can do more for your friends than they do for you. That's exactly right. It's well said. So in our conversations over the years, we usually go to Crack Dag over at Rainbow and 215. Shameless plug for them. It's a fantastic place. You know, we, we sit down, we have breakfast, we lose track of time. We're there for usually well over an hour. And pretty much every conversation I've ever had with you has been 20 25% business and industry and the balance family. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, one of my takeaways from you is that you seem to have prioritized your family and your personal life well before this term work-life balance was ever a buzzword. I'm not sure how long work-life balance has been a buzzword, <laughs> but I can tell you, yes, I've always prioritized my family above anything else. Um, with the caveat, I am that that's once I had a family, because there was a, another period in my life before I was married and, and, and started my family that was a very different period for me. Um, and when, I think when you don't have those obligations that, you have or at least should have to a spouse and, and to your family your view of the world is very different and in my opinion should be very different you know I kind of go back to uh, when I first came up here to Las Vegas and I'll never forget the uh, the conversation I had with, with Ed Roski when he asked me whether I'd like to come up to Las Vegas and, and open the office you know you're so conditioned to kind of give that obligatory response that you appreciate the offer and you'll give it some thought and get back to him and I just stopped myself mid sentence. What in the world am I thinking? Of course I'll go to Las Vegas. <laughs> Las Vegas to me was the ultimate vacation spot. You know, here, single guy coming to Las Vegas, everything that Vegas had to offer, I lapped up everything that Vegas had. And, you know, for me, 
that was that was as much about my move to Vegas as the the business opportunity. It was an opportunity to come up here to kind of the adults playground. And, you know, there again, I made the most of it for as long as I could. And then my world changed as it does for most people when they, you know, they find somebody that they, they fall in love with and, you know, embark on, uh, on that new path of that, which oftentimes includes a family. So what advice would you give? You know, I look at you and you've been a great role model for me in that when you're chasing success, it's easy to get lost in work and stay late and work on weekends and around the clock and maybe neglect or not spend as much time with your family as you can or should. So first, thank you for being a role model in that regard. But I, I view you as a, you know, you're as successful as they come in the industry of your choice, yet you, you make this a priority. So for anyone listening out there, what, what kind of advice would you want to give them? So I guess if I were to give any advice, it, it um, one of the, the areas that I prioritized as soon as I had family was to be there virtually every day. And that's not to, to mean that I didn't miss out on certain activities and the rest of that, but it was that I was willing to give up third-party, more incidental-type activities. I still put just as much time in at the office and would get into the office early and typically stay at the office late. However, I just always made a priority of... You know, being there to wake up my kids in the morning and get home early enough to you know, spend time with them and eventually put them to bed. And the trade-off for putting the amount of hours I did during the week is that I made a commitment to myself as well as to my wife that weekends were going to be for them. And so consistently, weekends always have been and still remain family time for me. That's very cool. It works for me. Anything else you want to share before we wrap up? No, I'm this is your show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then we'll we'll do it. So obviously, thank you very much, Rod. This goes to show you what a great negotiator I am by getting you to do this. You talked about negotiating earlier, but um, sincerely, thank you. I, I've learned a lot from you over the years. I learned even more from you in this conversation. Um, you know the importance as me as a father of of instilling honesty and integrity and how to do so, you know, through demonstrating it myself, leading by example, emphasizing it and, and doing it consistently. I loved your story about Ed Roski Sr. about when to celebrate, um, which to me is all about work ethic. And you don't celebrate when the deal gets done. You celebrate when you've paid off the loan. That's taking it even, even a step further. And I just love hearing stories uh, as you as a developer because I know what a dynamic profession that is and you um just as much as any of the other pro developers in this market really just do a good job wrapping your arms around everything design construction finance legal uh, negotiating brokerage relationships and everything else so thank you rod it's been my pleasure Ryan. thank you everyone for listening we'd love to hear from you share us anna delete that Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a comment. Leave us a review. Tune in next time. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways Podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.